Welcome back, podcast listeners. It's 2024 and we have a wonderful guest to kick things off, Dr. Ernesto Soroli. Dr. Ernesto is one of the world's leading consultants on the topic of economic development. He started working in the field of international aid in Africa in 1971 and has since worked in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom, Africa, Latin America, the USA and Asia in projects that promote local entrepreneurship and local self-determination. Dr. Soroli resides in the US where he was invited to establish the Soroli Institute. Dr. Soroli received a Laura di Dittore in Political Sciences from Rome University in 1976 and a PhD in Local Enterprise Facilitation from Murdoch University, Australia in 2024. Dr. Soroli is the author of two books, Ripples from the Zambezi, a bestseller and that is used in universities all around the world and how to start a business and ignite your life. In 2012, Dr. Soroli was invited to give a TED talk. His talk, Shut Up and Listen, has translated in 31 languages and downloaded more than 2,000 times. In 1985, he pioneered a unique economic development approach based on harnessing the passion, determination, intelligence, and resourcefulness of the local people in Esperance, Western Australia. The striking results of the Esperance experience have promoted more than 300 communities around the world to to adopt the responsiveness, person-centred approach to local economic development, similar to the enterprise facilitation model pioneered in the Esperance 26 years ago. The Esperance Community Project is still active and has helped over 800 new businesses in the first 20 years. Dr. Ernesto Soroli is the founder of the Soroli Institute, a non-for-profit organisational and social enterprise since 1995 that teaches community leaders, governments and corporations how to establish and maintain enterprise facilitation projects in their community. Enterprise facilitation teaches civic leaders how to organise themselves and capture locally intelligent and resourceful and resolve and train a local full-time advisor, the enterprise facilitator to introduce the fundamentals of good management to any entrepreneur. It succeeds by effectively restoring personal motivation and talent under the term of passion to its central role in spurring entrepreneurship and by consequence influence economic development. With such a wonderful history, there's a lot to get through today and, and Tony really enjoyed this conversation, so please enjoy. Ernesto, really lovely having you as a guest on the Kofkin Bond uh, podcast. Sorry, I nearly got my own name wrong. And welcome to us today. I've known about you for a couple of years from a mutual friend who you taught, uh, Tatiana Lukic Co. from Ignite as part of SSI, and they've just spoken so highly of you. So it's wonderful to have you as a guest. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure. Uh, And you are coming to us today from your home in Sacramento, so thank you for that as well. Ernesto, it would be, be, you know, remiss of me not to start by your TED Talk. It's it's had, it's been written up in the book TED Talks. It's uh, had three million odd views. It was in November 2012. And having the Italian heritage, I just love the title of the talk. You want to help someone? Shut up and listen. Magnificent. But you do speak about that. And can we just start on your your passion for entrepreneurship and making change in life and the title of this talk? 
It started when you were working in Africa, in Zambia, uh, with an NGO, which is all part of the talk. But could you give a bit of background of that and actually what brought you into that passion and how you went down that route to start with as a young man of 21? Yeah, all our projects uh, failed in Africa. I was working for the Italian uh, Technical Cooperation Services with African countries. And there was an agency funded by the Foreign Office. Um, and um, our projects only lasted our money. Uh, as soon as the money ran out, whatever we had built in a community in Africa uh, would be abandoned by the local people. And two or three years later, uh, they would actually dismantle the buildings, uh, sell, use the machinery, use the actual uh, cladding for buildings that they needed. They recycled the bricks. They, but... Two or three years later, you would go back to the village and you cannot, you could not be able to find anything. In fact, uh, one of the uh, comments that I got to my TED talk from, was from somebody in Africa to say, yeah, we would just wait for the project to finish and then we will buy all the stuff, abandoned stuff from all the foreign, foreign uh, projects. So the reason why the, the projects failed was because there was no buy-in from the local people. We arrived uninvited to, to do something that we thought was uh, fantastic for the local people. But it was like, uh, you know, what the federal government tend to do with Aboriginal people in Australia. They arrive uninvited, they set up something. And, uh, of course, they, that project only lasts the money. Uh, when the money runs out, the project runs out. And so what, um, um, after six, you know, five, six years, initially I was so naive that I thought that the, the failure of our project was because of our naivete, our incompetence as Italians. But then <laughs> after six, Six, seven years working in Africa, I had met people from every international agency, the Brits and the, the, the Germans and the French and uh, the Swedes and, and the Americans. And my God, after seeing what they were doing, I became quite fond of my project, my first project in Africa. And my first project in Africa, the project failed because the hippos came out of the river one year uh, in our uh, fantastic agricultural development project, as soon as we had the first tomatoes <laughs> up, uh, the hippos came from the from the river and they ate everything. And, you know, the project failed because we had never asked the local people, how come you don't have, you don't have agriculture here? Because if we would have asked the local people, they would have said, we don't have agriculture because the hippos, will eat anything you grow. And so we discovered millions of, uh, at that time, lira, uh, millions of uh, equivalent dollars um, after buying the land, training the people, get them to come from Italy, build their accommodations, all the rigmarole of a government program. Then we discovered that the local people knew exactly that the hippos will come and eat everything. And they never told us because we were paying them. <laughs> Every night we will pay them for the daily wages. And these guys would have done anything. You see, 
the guys would have done anything we will ask them to do. We were so, we were so overwhelming to the local culture. So, um, you know, after seeing so many failures in Africa, I, um, read a phenomenal book, which was at that time, uh, it was a bestseller, it was called Small is Beautiful by a British economist. Uh, and the book had become a bestseller and sold millions of copies. And in that book, Ernest Schumacher, uh, comes up with this, uh, quote in chapter 13 of the first edition. He, uh, he said, um, above all in development, if people do not wish to be helped, leave them alone. This should be the first principle of aid. And quite frankly, as a spoiled Roman, Roman, uh, uh, Roman Catholic boy, I was a Roman, Roman Catholic boy, uh, thinking that we Italians, you know, are generous people. We are bringing the light of Italian civilization, you know. Surely they want to be like us. <laughs> Cappuccino, the mafia, you know, for certainly great Italian civilization. Um, we uh, certainly will be uh, admired and welcome because we are bringing the light of our civilization to the African people in all our culture, in all our training. None had no professor, no Italian writer had ever come up with the concept that the African people are not the recipient of our uh, beneficence. The African people are actors in their own lives. They actually, they're not subjects. They are actually actors in their own lives and they make their own decisions and for me there was I had never heard such thing you know um, for us the African people were the recipient of our knowledge see they were not uh, um, uh, not even flesh and blood they were simply the beneficiaries of our superior intelligence and so I, when I understood, and it took me quite some time to understand what it meant if people do not wish to be helped, because for the first time they were the, not the subjects, they were the actors, they were the prime movers of their lives. And when I understood that, I understood that we are, we white people from the West, we are of immense arrogance and that we believe that we are better than them. That's why we go uninvited. We truly, profoundly believe that we are better than the other, that the one with a different color skin. Uh, and uh, so I was embarrassed. I was humiliated by that. And so I took Small is, uh, Small is Beautiful and I went first to a university in South Africa, and then from there I came to Australia, uh, wanting to do a PhD, a, a research on why don't we ask them 
what they need. Why don't we do for once? Why don't we, arrogant, you know, Westerners, why don't we for once have the dignity to ask them, what do you need, mate? What, what, is, what is that we can do for you? And uh, so in the very first university in South Africa, they said to me, we don't believe that your approach uh, can do anything good, Ernesto, because certainly the only people who would ever invite you are very poor people in poor communities. And uh, poor people in poor communities, they don't know how to help themselves. They are uneducated. They are unemployed, unemployable. They're away from central businesses. And they suffer from every social ill that poverty uh, generates. So they are, you know, broken families, divorces, uh, single moms. And then all the, uh, you know, all the terrible things like alcoholism, drug use, and, uh, and, and you want to listen to them. Ernesto, they don't know how to help. It's us. We have to tell them. You see, it is on us. You cannot ask them. And that what got me to study psychology because the only people in the world who actually listen to the client are psychologists. And there is a school of psychology that is in particular incredibly strong in this putting the client at the center, and that is um, humanistic psychology. So I started to study psychology, and I said to my university professors, professors, you're wrong, because every single human being has a dream, and the dream could be, uh, you know, to learn how to fish, but the dream could also be wanting to go back and finish school, and the dream could be how you make a living taking people walkabouts, taking tourists to see the beauty of your uh, land, and maybe you can make a, a living uh, doing millions of different things. Uh, and if we knew what your dream was, we would be uh, halfway there to be able to help you. So I came to Australia and I found a university professor who is still on the board of my organization, Professor Peter Newman. Professor Peter Newman at the time was a young, uh, you know, uh, university assistant. And uh, Peter Newman said to me, I don't really believe in your uh, approach. And so I think it's a little bit too idealistic. But Peter Newman, uh, first academic in the world, <laughs> who said to me, I don't believe it, but what can I do for you to prove me wrong? What can I do? What can I do so that you can prove me wrong? And I said, Peter, I need to, you know, I need to, I don't know anybody here. I, I don't want to arrive in a community as a missionary. I don't like that approach. Uh, so if a community doesn't invite me, I cannot go. But nobody knows me here. So that's my, my problem is that I cannot prove that there are Hundreds of passionate people right now dying of solitude and with nobody listening to them in every community in Australia uh, because I will never be invited. He says, so you're part of the university. The first time a community will come looking for government help or university help, um, 
I will tell the people from the community that uh, there is a student in my university who see, who looks at economic development the other way around, starting from what people need and want, and let's see if I can get you invited. And that, that's my story. Ernesto, just, there's a couple of things, because your story is actually quite beautiful, but you had somebody who said, you don't think you can do it, but let's give it a shot. Something my dad always just said to me, because he knew my reaction was, oh, I'll show you. <laughs> so I can do this. But there's, there's a couple of things from that. And, you know, there's the saying, you can, what is it? You can, uh, give a man a fish and feed him for a day or teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. And, and from what I understand, it seems that you're the person who teaches people to be able to help do their dream, whether it's giving those yeah. tours in the outback or it's, it's actually their dream. And, and I think that's one of the most important parts is you're not actually – uh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to Ignite as an example in Armadale there um, with the work they do with the First Nations people there. It's helping them start a business that they actually want, which all comes from the yeah. work that you have actually taught them as well. But it's a business that they want, that they're passionate about, that they want to follow and do. And yeah. it's not something that they'll necessarily share in a group scenario, but as an individual one-on-one, which is something you've always spoken about, is where yeah. they say, this is what my dream and passion is. And for them too, it helps the community. It helps less reoffending, uh, you know, in those who that have been in trouble, like what you're saying with the drugs and alcohol. There's so many positives from it. Government yeah. don't necessarily listen. Universities don't listen, but it's individuals like you that make that change. So do you want to talk about that one-on-one yeah. rather than the group uh, scenario? Yeah. What, what happened was that uh, uh, when I was invited in the first uh, community that was struggling in Australia, uh, what I started to do, I started to really walk the street because nobody believed that they, you know, the mayor of the community said to me, nobody here has a half a brain, Ernesto. Don't look for these people who have their own passion and self-motivation because they don't want to work. They want to be on the dog. All the kind of really very uh, uh, crass generalization about people. The reality is that uh, there are people who have their own dreams, but they are not going to go to a public meeting and tell in a public meeting what they want to do with their money because they're scared that somebody with more money will buy the building. They're scared that somebody will go and do it before them. And so uh, entrepreneurs never go to public meetings. So all the planning in the world suffer from this blind spot. The scientists call the blind uh, spot uh, a scotoma. A scotoma is when you are looking at something and you cannot see it. It's in front of you, but you cannot see it. That's a scotoma. And uh, so plan planners... They say, oh, you know, we did community consultations. Nobody here wants to do anything. Well, entrepreneurs never go to public meetings. Uh, the only way you are going to get an entrepreneur to tell you what she's dreaming to do, what he's dreaming to do, is when the meeting is in one-on-one and in confidence. So it's free and confidential. So I invented the enterprise facilitation uh, model this enterprise facilitation model has been replicated in some 400 communities in 27 countries. We have helped to start some 65,000 businesses. Uh, we have written uh, three, uh, now I'm writing the third book. Uh, this approach has gone uh, every con- in, in every continent. And everywhere we uh, work, we have had people who have come to talk to us 
when we have offered uh, free confidential service. Uh, and at the first meeting, uh, we uh, we teach the secret of business. Uh, that's what we do. Can I can I touch on that? You you've you know you've spoken about in your TED talk and someone who I love as well, Peter Drucker, and you've got here uh, you know a quote from Peter Drucker, the uh, the Drucker's paradox. Planning, as the term is commonly understood, is actually incompatible with the entrepreneurial society and economy. Innovation does indeed need to be purposeful and entrepreneurship has to be managed. But innovation, almost by definition, has to be decentralised, ad hoc, autonomous, specific, microeconomic. It had better start small, tentative, flexible. Innovation opportunities do not come with the tempest, but with the rustling of the breeze. Peter Drucker. If corporations cannot plan for innovation to appear from within their ranks, what can they do? And that's the same as what you're saying with the entrepreneur. Is that correct? Absolutely. What we say is that uh, um, there are um, everything starts with the person. And so I'm, I'm, for instance, I am being waging a war on uh, uh, on the people who say find your the why. Why? Find the why. And I said, no, find the who. Because quite frankly, if you, you can conceive the most beautiful why, if people cannot uh, implement it, you have nothing. So uh, start with why <clears throat> is what the idealists say. Find the why. Let's, let's create utopia. I'm a humanist. What I'm saying is that you start with who. Because the the uh, the prime mover behind every uh, enterprise is the passion of the individual for her own his own growth, and that's innate. <clears throat> it's all from within us. the The symbol, the logo of the Siroli Institute, is a pod which is half open, and you can see the seed inside. And what we say is that people are like that. There is a husk around the person inside. There is this golden, golden um, uh, essence of the person is the seed, which uh, if is given the right nutrients will grow into a beautiful plant. Now, everything starts from inside the person with the gifts that the person has received at birth. Remember, we received 400 bits of DNA from five generations before uh, we are born. And so we carry this incredible history of the humanity of our, fam- of our uh, family, our race, our destiny. We carry it in, our, in, in ourselves. And then people have this incredible nostalgia to the, until they can become the beautiful person that is inside of themselves, they suffer from uh, what some philosophers call nostalgia for the future. Uh, They know that inside of them there is this beauty, that there is no way they can can come out. So what I do in communities, what our enterprise facilitators in communities do, they go hunting for beauty. And when people show up, the very first thing that we do, we say, tell, tell me your story. Tell me the story of your family. Tell me why 
you believe you that uh, tell me the story of you aboriginal woman up in in darwin in uh, in uh, in port headland tell me the story about you making uh you know uh, cosmetics out of na- uh, native plants where does it come from this love from native plants what do you know about it and she says yeah me you know, my grandma and i we will go picking you know uh, australian native plants and when you see the sparkle in the in the eye of this Aboriginal woman, you want to say, "Oh my God, that's the beauty." And then, very simply, uh, after listening for fifteen twenty minutes to her passion, you you ask her, you say, "And what do you love to do in the business? Making the product, taking the product to the market, or look after the money?" And she says, which is the, so which is the trinity of, which is the trinity of management you speak about. Which is, which is the secret of business. The yes. business has to do three things beautifully. The business, not, not the individual. That's, that's, that's the death by solitude. Entrepreneurs die of solitude. The reality is that there is no history of any successful company in the history of the world where one person has developed and run a successful business alone. There is no evidence. To the Italians, I tease the Italian mercilessly because what I say to the Italians when I give talks there, I said, who was the first accountant of Enzo Ferrari? And nobody in Italy knows, was his mom. La signora Dalgisa Ferrari, who was a terrible tyrant of a woman, but she controlled the finances beautifully and he gave Enzo all the financial controls that he needed when he set up the first Alfa Romeo franchise. Because that was his first business. So my point is, what we teach, imagine teaching these people, you know, in Lake... uh, uh, Atatlan in Guatemala, uh, these people in this little village in Honduras, this group of women in Nepal. Imagine teaching these people in the Congo, in Katanga, uh, that what they need to do is uh, authentically and strongly identify their gift, their competitive advantage. As soon as they identify theirs, they have to go and find out somebody in the village who does, be- who does beautifully what they hate doing. Until they have somebody make it beautifully, could be 46 women in Nepal producing turmeric. Of yeah. the 46, identify who are the people who only love to grow the flowers, who loves to make the actual powder, who loves to then do the marketing, only doing the marketing, and they have the character and the passion to go and knock at doors every day of the year, and who loves the numbers. And as soon as they do that, this business becomes rocket ships. And I, every time I travel the world and visit my old uh, projects, and now my old projects are 30 years old, uh, so I go to celebrations <laughs> every 10 yeah. years. 20 years, I call my wife from Nepal, from Bangladesh, from uh, Mexico, 
and I am so choked up and uh, either with, with emotion that I cannot talk or I am so high that my wife says, are you on cocaine? Because I am flying. I To see what happens when you break that horrible uh, non-education in business, which is what university tend to give you, you know, learn to do a little bit of everything in the business. Yeah. Uh, when when you discover the power of forming a team of three maniacs, one loves to make it day and night for the rest of her life. The other one loves to make new friends in the marketplace and follow leads and modify the products to accommodate changing needs. And the third one always makes certain that the company is profitable. In other words, they are not spending more money making it than selling it. So as soon as that happens, uh, we see stories that, um, uh, uh, I don't know, um, imagine Imagine my profession. I go to bed at night knowing that one of my enterprise facilitators in some 400 communities in the world that day had completely transformed the life of someone who until that day was suicidal. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the amazing things that you do and have done for some 60 odd thousand businesses globally around the world. And, but it's, you know, and one of the things you just mentioned was, you know, you asked them about their family and their parents. And, and that's what we were doing for 45 minutes off air. We were talking about our backgrounds and our family and our love for Italy. And we found out that, you know, your wife Martha and my mum both yeah, right. have the same maiden surnames right. in Ireland and are only about five, and only about 500 metres apart from each other where both families were. They're both Ryans. So it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting, but that was due to a conversation that we were having, uh, finding that common ground. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that may a I lot of people today uh, through social media can lack. May I tell you something that I hope that I can tell you without becoming emotional, but um, when I was nine years old, I, my father became the, uh, the head of the Department of Radiology for the uh, major uh, civil hospital in Benghazi, in Libya. And for three years, he he, uh, he had the times of his life because the Libyans had found oil, so they were very wealthy. That was be- before Gaddafi, in the six, in the early, uh, in the late 50s, actually, 1958, I was there. I was an eight-year-old boy. Uh, but when I was there, I was in a, in a uh, uh, Christian Brothers school where not only foreigners would go to the school, but also Libyan families uh, and people from many, many different nations. So my, my classroom was full of English, French, Greeks, Maltese, uh, Armenians, Turks, Saudi, Palestinians. We were. But what I wanted to tell you. That sounds like Melbourne. Yes, but what I wanted to tell you is, listen to this. My two best friends, one was a Palestinian Muslim. The other one was an Israeli Jew. And the three of us, we had three bicycles. 
a Christian and Jew and a Muslim. And we were inseparable. Inseparable. And it, it and pains me. It pains me to see what's happening in the world. It pains me because I remember what uh, that what I say to people is that yes, we have culture and religion which are different, but when you scratch the the, the skin, we all bleed the same. Correct. And you know there are people, uh, cultural anthropologists. They go, they send me crazy because they cultural anthropologists emphasize the differences, which is very nice because you discover different civilizations and cultures, so you become very respectful. But at the same time. My father, my grandfather, my grand-grandfather, they were all doctors for seven generations. They cure pneumonia the same way in every country in the world. How is it possible if people are so different? How come a race which is the preferred race to a preferred God, how come we can treat them equally to the way we treat the Buddhists and, uh, and the Jews and the Muslims? How come? So where is the real difference? And that's why we humanists, that's why we humanists, uh, you know, <laughs> are so furious when you see that, uh, uh, we can create ideologies in the name of which we can kill other human beings. Oh, but it's, it's, it's been, you know, just a, I just find it absolutely horrendous that we can even, that humans can even think that way. And as you know, I come from a multi-faith, uh, upbringing, you know, with both oh. my parents and, and things like that. But it's, and I went to a Christian brothers college as well. Uh, and my father said, you will get up every morning and go swimming because I was on a swimming scholarship. And he said, half the school fees are paid for. You're going to continue swimming some. But it was, um, it was, it was just, that, it was just that basis of, and he was getting me up every morning to take me swimming. So he was up at 4.30 every morning as well. But if we, if we go back and you talk about, you know, that school, um, in, in, uh, where you were, you know, just the melting pot of completely different nationalities. In, in some ways, that's like, you know, Melbourne in the 40s, 50s, 60s. It started in the late 1800s, you know, if Martha's family is an example. But the, but the basis of it is so many different people from all around Europe came here and you see it, you know, the school I went to was full of Greeks and Italians and Irish and third generation and fourth generation Australians. And the one thing that the immigrants had inbuilt in them when they came out here, as we were talking off air earlier, Italy after World War II was so poverty-stricken. My parents came from horrendous poverty too. They came here with absolutely nothing and worked so hard to make sure me as, as the beneficiary was educated absolutely. and then after that kicked out and you will go forth and you will go and build as well. And they just worked so hard for their family and to make sure they had opportunities that they would not have had back home and they were never going to pass up those opportunities. And you see the same with refugees today. It's, they just give them, the, give them the opportunity and the education to go forth and build. But Tony, may I say, may I say something that maybe will bring a, a smile on the lips of uh, the people from uh, immigrant families? We... Immigrants, we share a secret that the native people don't understand. It's something that we share among ourselves, but it's something that is not even spoken in public. And this is the secret. 
we Italo Australians, Irish Australians, Iraq, Iraqi Australians, Syrians Australians, there is one thing that we can never, ever, ever do. We cannot go back to our country poor. Right. Because right. the people that we have left behind, they will spit on us. Once you've gone, you have to make it. There is only one condition that you go back to Greece if you are a Greek Australian. You go with money in your pocket. They will not even allow you to go and live on welfare in Greece or in Lebanon. We have to make it. The Australians were perplexed when they met the Irish uh, and the Italians and the Greeks because they never seen that kind of hunger before. They were making fun of the Italians because the Italians would do anything. They would work like dogs. And the Australians said, calm down. I know the story of an Italian at the quarantine center in Sydney who had just arrived from Italy, was a young man, who saw the people who were working for an Australian crew to repaint all the doors and the windows of the quarantine center in, uh, in Sydney Harbor. And this young Italian guy said to them, let me help you. And the guy said, no, 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 you cannot work here. You cannot be paid. He said, no, 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 I don't want to be paid. I want to do something because I'm bored. So the foreman, the Australian foreman, said, okay, if you want to do it, he gave him a brush and a can of paint. And in a day, after one day, he stopped this guy. Are you crazy? You can't work at that speed. You cannot do that. Because we have our own timing to do the stuff. So what with the secret is the secret that I brought into SSI. When SSI, when that amazing, uh, extraordinary uh, uh, woman, uh, Violet Rumeliotis, met me, I told the story and I said, <clears throat> we immigrants, we uh, go into small business because we cannot get, we don't speak English, we cannot get high paid jobs. And Violet, she was, she was absolutely trans. She said, Oh my God, Ernesto, my parents is the story of my parents. They came and they could go and do some very menial jobs, paid very little. So they said, let's start a business and they become a very successful business family. And I said, yes, because we cannot go back poor. So we have this, we are turbocharged. Also, we know poverty. We come from poverty. We don't like poverty. We know what poverty smells, what poverty does to people. So she said, oh, Ernesto, my God, why don't we then uh, do this with what you say with all the immigrants and refugees. And I said, yeah, why don't we ask immigrant and refugees what were they doing in the country and ask them, would you like to start a business? 
And it's been the most incredible success. As you know, it's been an incredible success. It's been an unbelievable success, but Ernesto, I will quote to quote my father when I was a young fellow, maybe 12, 13, and yeah. I said to dad, dad, why did you pack up everything you and mum and come here to Australia with absolutely nothing? You know, they never hid that from us. And he came here to Australia with absolutely nothing. He said, son, we left nothing behind. So if we didn't make it here, we had nothing to lose. So it's about we had opportunities here that we were never going to, we realised very quickly we had opportunities here that we were never going to get back home. And I also told you the story of the Pisanellis, a large Italian family that lived in my street in Mooney Ponds. And they were concreters and they are worth tens of millions of dollars now, the five, the, or the five boys and daughter, uh, from Tony Pisanelli, their father's hard work. And his philosophy, you know, they were concreters, but a huge business. We came, we saw, we concreted. And they did. They concreted everything. And <laughs> an unbelievable success for those boys were the hardest workers because their dad made sure they were. And they, as a result, are huge successes in their own rights today as well. Yeah. And uh, I know many, many examples of Italians. And, uh, they were joking when these people would arrive. The joke in the 50s was that the Italians had very long arms and short legs and was the weight of the wheelbarrow that yeah. stretched their, their, their arms. Uh, yeah, but I know companies which have been sold for half a billion dollars, construction, Italian construction companies sold for half a billion dollars 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And so they, those Italians had the last, the, the last laugh. Uh, but it's a secret for every uh, immigration. And when I tell this to the Americans, the Americans are so, uh, they look, uh, they now, everybody's, uh, you know, big part of this big American family, but the reality is that this is a country of immigrants. And uh, so there are times when uh, uh, maybe fourth, fifth generation Americans have forgotten what was the ethos of their uh, of the very first members of their families, their ancestors. So I had to remind them what the ethos was. They could not go back unless they had made it. Especially, can you imagine, you go back to a little village in Italy, you say, I went to America for 30, 40 years and I have not made it. And now I'm poor and I'm coming to the village impoverished. Uh, no, you cannot do that. You will never show your face again. You will never go back to the village. You'd rather die poor in uh, in America than go back to Italy to say, I went to America and I've not been able to make it there. So there is something very, very uh, powerful. No, I totally agree. So, Ernesto, in closing, if you could have one last, you know, this is a question without notice, uh, but if you could have one last message to give to our listeners in respect to the work you do, uh, and, you know, with not-for-profits like SSI, but with other businesses as well and societies as well, what would be uh, that, to close off, what would that be? What I would suggest is this, um, you always find what you look for. Be very, very, very careful to look at your colleagues, uh, your community, your village, your neighborhood, looking for problems because you're going to find them. You're going to find violence, drug use. You're going to find, uh, if you look for criminality, you're going to find criminality. So remember that if you learn 
to look for beauty, you're also going to find it. So it's now some 40 years that I only ever see beauty because when I arrive in a community, I'm looking for beautiful people who maybe have been incapable so far to express their beauty. Uh, and uh, even when the mayor of the community says to me, don't work with that person because that person has always failed. I said to the man, the person has failed because they didn't know me. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Now, not only he has uh, the enterprise facilitator working on, on her corner, but has an entire group of volunteers in the community that are prepared to play the game or see, let's see how many people we can help to go from their own talent to set up a company that is viable and sustainable. So what we do, uh, it is like in quantum physics. In quantum physics, the observer determines the outcome of the experiment because in quantum physics, if you're looking for a particle, you find a particle. If you're looking for a wave, you see a wave. So what happens is that you determine the outcome of your experiment. So now imagine that you look at your corporations and inside your corporation, you're looking for truancy, delinquency. You're going to find it. Imagine now that you instead are looking at people who have this inexpressive beauty that has nowhere to go. And you give the people inside your company the ability to blossom. So um, uh, there is a, a possibility for us. And the possibility is to say, I want to be on the side of looking for beauty and help fulfill beauty. And it's a choice. And uh, to be able to have invented the profession that uh, transforms people's dream into reality has been very, I mean, I am, like Nietzsche says, would you repeat your life completely, identically and forever? Yes. I would be delighted with all that I've gone through, but I would be delighted to repeat my life step by step, day by day, because the face of the people that you have been able to uh, to help to blossom. Ernesto, I have got a smile from ear to ear, having talked to you now for the last hour and a half. Uh, we're talking off air as well. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to know you, uh, get to know more about Martha as well. Love your passion and absolutely love the work you've done for communities and for so the change in so many people's lives you have made around the world because of your passion. So uh, I would like to thank you not for just for being a guest but for being who you are. Really appreciate you. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Ciao, Antonio. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Ciao, Bella. Ciao, Carlo. Ciao. The Kafka Bond podcast is a product from Kafka Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Kian Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kafka Bond podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. 
do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Pond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the host of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.